Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it back. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us to the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. All right, we are here talking about all things Premier League, and by we, it's just me and Jamie, who you can find at Jamie Smith Sport, uh, partially because there was kind of a big football match going on today with England, obviously, in the Women's Euros Finals, a match in which they came out champions. Uh, so, Jamie, I, I guess we got to start off with that. Uh, it, whatever that specifically refers to, came home. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole football's coming home thing, which the main reason I like it so much is that it seems to really annoy a lot of Europeans. Um, so the fact that it, it did finally come home um, is incredible. I, I went to a couple of the games right at the tournament, not the England game, unfortunately, but a couple of the others. It's been great to have a home tournament, a proper home tournament after last summer was sort of all over Europe and then England had some of the games. Um, so it, it's been fantastic. It really feels like a, a big sort of landmark moment for women's football and women's sport in this country, probably comparable to when the US won the World Cup on home soil in, what was it, 99? Mm. Um, I think women's football has been behind in Europe compared to America for a long, long time, but hopefully that's now going to change. Um, I think it's it's easy for us to forget, and a lot, a lot of listeners might not realise, but for 50 years in this country, Women's football was essentially banned. Women weren't allowed to play on FA grounds at FA stadiums. So they were essentially banned from playing. It's only relatively recently that they've been allowed to play again and the game's now becoming professionalised. So this is all really the culmination of of that. And to leave myself out of it, I'm just really happy for everyone who's spent years and years promoting and pushing the women's game to get to this point where England can go one step further and, and win a major tournament, the first that we've won in men's or women's football since 1966, after a few near misses at, at Euros and World Cups before. So, yeah, a great time. And I think we were deserved champions easily, the best team in the tournament. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, what did you make of the tournament on the whole? Apparently you got to make it to some of the matches, which is pretty awesome. And, and what was the atmosphere like in the country throughout the tournament and then coming into and then ultimately in the final? Because obviously on Twitter, everybody's like delighted, but I just was wondering if, if that was kind of matched by the general public. Yeah, I think it is. I think there is a lot of enthusiasm. There's obviously still the sort of naysayers who get grumpy about women's sport and think that women should be back in the kitchen making the men's tea and I don't think you're ever going to get rid of that um but the tv audiences have been really high there's been sort of millions of people watching games on tv 
a lot of the games have been breaking records for attendances. When we were sold out today, I think the biggest women's match attendance since that World Cup final that I mentioned before at the, the Rose Bowl, where there was what, 100,000 people or something. Mm. Um, the two games I went to at Sheffield's Bramall Lane actually set a record for, let me get this right, because it sounded a bit convoluted, but it's still impressive. Um, non host nation group game records. So obviously home nation games tend to do really well in terms of sentences, but they were getting nearly 30,000 people going to watch Netherlands v Sweden or Netherlands v Switzerland. So mm. a lot of people travel to England as well, which is great because obviously travel's opening up again and it's felt like a really special occasion. The atmosphere at women's games, I don't know if you've been to the women's games yourself, Kev, but it's completely different to the men's games. There's so many more families there, young kids. Yeah. Um, it's much more of like a party mood. You don't get the sort of aggro between different sets of fans. Everyone just seems to be there to have a really good time. It's it's really good atmosphere, actually. And having had a bit of a taste of it this summer, I'll hopefully get some more women's football in the future. I'm certainly, certainly considering myself more of a fan now. Yeah, the women's game is great, and we used to cover the Women's World Cup, and we'd have, like, Kieran Tavemon, who I think now works for England. Uh, not the country. <laughs> the, the, and the women's side of it and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, huge, huge advocates when, when we get to talk about it on the show, and very cool that England got to have that moment. Uh, and, yeah, I was just looking it up, and some people reporting that it's the highest attendance for any Euros final ever, men's or women's, which, uh, if if true, very, very cool. Uh, for that to happen and very happy for you know all the English fans that listen to the show and obviously all the guests to come on as well pretty pretty exciting times and it was it was a pretty good match itself this the start of the second half looked a little dicey with Germany kind of kind of running right were, were you starting to get nervous there or were you always a little confident after that first goal went in yeah I mean Germany as a team have got such an incredible record in this tournament I think they're eight, nine times champions. They'd beaten us in the final the, the last time we got to the final, only time we've been to the final. I think that was um, the end of the 90s. So this is a team with a, a historic record in finals. But the way England had performed all the way through the tournament, there was a lot of confidence that they were going to get the job done. And I think having the home advantage with that massive crowd maybe gave them the edge as well. Um, I think the game itself was, was a classic sort of major final, really, wasn't it? It was really tight. Um, I had a feeling it was going to be a mistake that settled it. It turned out it was more just like a bit of a scramble from a set piece, which is maybe fitting with the way that the, the last sort of half an hour went. Um, it was a shame that Germany's best striker got injured in the warm-up and had to pull out. I think it would have been maybe more of a spectacle if they'd have had Alex pop up front against Beth Mead, going for the golden boot as well, all that extra subtext. Um, but I, th I think this England team have just got more steel about them. I know it's not the done thing to always compare to the men's team, but obviously the men's team got to the final at Wembley last summer, so it's quite natural to compare. But that England team, the England men's team just played with fear. And this England women's team just have no fear. The complete conviction... Um, and that, I think, comes from the coach, Serena Wiegmann, who was in charge of Netherlands when they won their home tournament yep. five years ago now. Um, that just seems to have made a, a massive difference in the, the mentality. All the girls seem to be having a huge amount of fun, not feeling the pressure and the weight of expectations. So, yeah, I'm really happy that they managed to get the job done. And like I said before, hopefully it's a, 
a real landmark for for women in this country playing sport and all the girls and boys will be inspired by seeing this and want to go and play football and be more active and hopefully it'll really help to develop the game in this country. Yeah, I saw a couple of tweets about like looking forward to seeing all the kids on the playground trying to replicate that chipped goal. <laughs> yeah, oh, the chipped goal from Alatoum is obviously unbelievable. Earlier in the tournament, we've had the, the back heel from, yeah. from Russo in the semifinals. Absolutely fantastic goals. Anyone who's still a doubter about the quality in the women's game, honestly, watch the goal from Alatoum if you haven't seen it in the final. Unbelievable pass from Kira Walsh, sort of 50, 60 yard through ball. In the air, Ellison goes through and lobs the goalkeeper. It's a fantastic goal. Match anything you'll see in the men's game this season, honestly. Totally. And, and like the ice in the veins needed to try to pull that off in that moment. Just just absolutely unreal stuff. Definitely agree. For those that haven't seen it, go watch the goal. For those that haven't seen it, maybe just go watch the whole final. It, it was a terrific one. And again, congrats to uh, to England at large. Um, this uh, match probably mattered a bit more than the one we're about to talk about as we shift towards the men's game, which was the Community Shield. Uh, Liverpool ended up 3-1 winners. And I was just curious because, Jamie, I'm sure you know, some clubs kind of count it if they win another trophy. And they're like, oh, we won a double, the Community Shield in an FA Cup. Or if they would, uh, I think it was United that had the Europa League and something else, and I think they tried to include it as part of a treble. I was just curious yeah. what you make of the Community Shield and whether you kind of view it as like the launching point for the following season or if it's really just the end of the preseason. I think it, it, it can be a, a bit of both, and I think it is down to really the teams and the managers involved, sort of how seriously they want to take it. Um, I think Jose Mourinho was always one who, who treated it very seriously, wasn't he? And he's very mm. much like, it's a cup, it's silverware. It's a title. It's something for my personal CV. Um, not all managers seem to think the same way. I, I think Jurgen Klopp won it for the first time, didn't he, this year? He Liverpool lost mm. in the previous finals. I think that's right. Um, so some some managers obviously take it more seriously than others. Um, I think what was interesting about yesterday's game, and I'm sure we'll come on to this in more detail, was that both teams are obviously adapting to the new striker. I think that's going to be the big the big sort of deciding factor in probably who wins the league title, whether City adapt to Haaland better than Liverpool can adapt to Nunez coming in to replace Mane. Um, and on on the game's evidence, it looks like Liverpool are ahead in terms of their, their adaptation period to that. Um, but yeah, it is essentially a friendly. I think in other countries, maybe they've tried different things to jazz it up or make it more of a, a contest or so a bit of the German version that was on I think Saturday night as well. Um and Bayern seemed to treat that as a as a real trophy. Um but I don't know if, if other teams are particularly bothered. You'd think they would be since they don't get a chance to win any other trophies in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but like I think in Italy they've moved it to Saudi Arabia and stuff so yeah, I don't think anyone treats it as like a really, really serious trophy, but I think it is a, a useful thing to have. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, though, does it? Remember Manchester United when it when David Moyes came in and I thought that was going to be the start of the glorious new era and it turned out to be one of the only matches they won under his leadership. So yeah, it's uh, it doesn't necessarily mean anything as much as us writers and pundits and commentators might try and draw meaning out of what is essentially a training ground exercise. <laughs> That's fair. But if you would permit me, 
What did you learn from what was essentially (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned the striker thing. I do think that's an interesting note because I don't know if Holland has really hit the ground running as much as people expected. Had a couple of chances that people probably would have thought he would have scored. Everybody was clowning Darwin Nunez after his very first friendly, but then he's kind of been scoring in buckets ever since. Do do you think that's really the main thing, like you said? Yeah, I think so. And I think overall preseason, you can get carried away in both directions. I made quite a conscious effort this season to not really pay any attention to the preseason of my team, Burnley, um, just because I didn't feel like it was going to be so relevant. Um, I think it, it does depend on what's going on in the club and what players are coming in. If there's a new manager and stuff, then maybe you can learn more from what happens in preseason. But they are the just training ground games basically for fitness and working on tactical systems and getting used to what the manager wants and stuff. So I don't think the result necessarily means anything. Um, but I think Liverpool did seem more cohesive than than City. Um, Nunes seems a more natural fit, I think it's fair to say, than Haaland's City. Not say he's going to be more of a hit there or that Liverpool will win the league as a result, just that there's going to be more work needed from City and Haaland to get used to each other, whereas Nunes seems very much like he's going to be the same as Luis Diaz, who came in in January and just slotted in straight away. Mm. He seems to have the right desire and attitude and mentality to play for that Liverpool team. Um, not to say Haaland doesn't at City, I just think it's going to be more of a an uneven sort of fit for them. Mostly just because they kind of played pseudo-strikerless for the last two seasons and now all of a sudden they have that kind of focal point. Exactly, yeah. There was a few times, weren't there? In the first half in particular, Haaland was running in behind, which is how he scores so many of his goals because he's so fast and his movement and timing is exceptional. And City, since Aguero lost his pace, haven't had someone who did that. They've just got used to picking the lock. There was a few times when Haaland was making these runs and already started to look a bit frustrated because the ball wasn't coming. But I think City will get used to that and they will play that path more and Haaland will maybe learn when he needs to link the play and when he needs to make the runs. I think there will be a development of City's style because you don't spend all that money on Haaland, arguably the best number nine in the world, if you're not going to tailor your game to suit him. I think he'll score goals there whether they do or not. But I think it is inevitable that City are going to play slightly differently, whereas I think Liverpool are going to be much the same. Just maybe Nunez will play instead of of, of Mane in the, the front three that we got used to watching. Um, what was interesting with Haaland was the chances that he missed because in England we've obviously seen his highlight reels and we've seen him in the Champions League and he, he just seemed like he never missed. So to see Haaland missing really good chances and the one at the end is an absolute sitter. Um, that was unusual. But I think he's still going to be a huge success. He's an unbelievable talent. City are arguably the best team in the world. So it's it's difficult to say that it's not going to work. But it did look a bit like Lukaku at Chelsea last season, didn't it? With like the big striker who wants the certain sort of service and the team just not giving it him. I think they'll probably work it out better than Lukaku and, and Tuchel at Chelsea. Chelsea, but it might take a bit of time. 
Yeah, I, I could totally see that happening. Although, uh, you know, it seems pretty rude to invoke <laughs> Lukaku when talking about Holland just because of how poorly that obviously went last season. And then obviously he's already gone, <laughs> already back to enter. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I, th- I think the talent's too good, but they will have to rework the way that they were building attacks to get the most out of Holland, which you'd think they would want to, <laughs> given given the price tag. Um, yeah, right. I mean, the, the point of that the signing as well, sorry to interrupt, it's... Yeah. City can win the win games in the Premier League. That's never going to be a problem because they'll have all the ball. They'll create the chances. They'll score the goals. The whole point of signing Holland is for the Champions League, right? They need someone who's going to make the difference in those games against elite teams where they can't just steamroller teams and win 3-0 at a canter. They're going to need Holland to deliver in those games. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter how he plays in August, in September, in October, in the Premier League, as long as by February, March, in April in the Champions League as long as it's working by then that's why they've signed him to try and get that Champions League before Guardiola is yeah I, I think that makes sense um, that seemed pseudo prediction so let's just do some of those now I, like I said a lot of people not available today so we've opted for a man that supports championship club coming and doing yep. Premier League predictions um, yep. <laughs> obviously you're, you're a pretty well informed guy so we figured we'd go through this this is obviously the last preseason show before uh, the first kickoff takes place in the Premier League so we'll start off with who you think is going to win the league well I'm going to really stick my neck out and say it's probably going to be between City and Liverpool Ooh, Don't know crazy I think those two teams have just been so far ahead of the chasing pack for a few years now, isn't it, really? Um, obviously, United finished second a few years ago, but it's mainly been those two battling it out. Like I said earlier, I think it's going to come down to which team incorporates the new striker better. Been positive signs for Nunez so far, but I... I rate Haaland so highly, I just think it's inevitable that he's going to score a bucket full of goals in that City team and they'll, they'll work out how to play to his strengths and it it won't be immediate but it just will work. Um, I think City's strength in depth is just insane. They seem to have done clever business in the transfer mm. window so far and moving on some fringe players. Calvin Phillips is a good sort of depth piece to add cover for Rodri, a bit of an alternative in there as well. They don't seem to have any real weaknesses. Um, left backs maybe the, the been the problem position for them, but if they can get Cucurella from Brighton, which seems to be something they're trying to do, that would probably fix that. Um, it'll probably come down to the matches between the two teams, won't it? And I think City have just shown in the last few years that they're slightly better. They're going for what is it five titles in six years? So I think it's really really hard to look beyond City, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was really close again and maybe between three points at max between those two. Yeah, obviously as a Spurs fan, I'm really hoping both of them come back to the pack a little bit. And they both may, as both of them go through those kinds of transitionary periods. Um, Liverpool post Mane and uh, City now with a, uh, what do they call those? Strikers. Um, <laughs> actually two, because Julian Alvarez came, obviously, who scored yesterday. Um, but yeah, I, I've gone with City as well. It it just seems really rude that a club that was already the best in England last season suddenly gets to add a world-class striker and, you know, upgrade on Fernandinho with um, Calvin Phillips. Fernandinho, obviously, legend at the club, but was getting older, wasn't yep. as 
as usable and then you just bring in one of the better uh, options in there for for England and within England so yeah pretty pretty good signings there I think the only interesting thing is you mentioned the depth there and they have let a lot of their depth go um, with Sterling gone, Jesus gone, Zanchenko gone, if they don't manage to get Cucurella, and it, it seems like Brighton are taking the same position that Tottenham did last year, and when you're dealing with a club like City, why wouldn't you? I'm just being like, this is the price. Why are you still calling us? Send a check for yeah. that amount, or, or don't. Um, and so it is odd that they've done that two years in a row, but at the same time, when they didn't get Kane last year, I was like, that just cost them the title. And then to your point, won it anyway. Exactly, didn't yeah. matter at all. And I, I feel similarly about this. If they got Cucurella in, I think it would like make them air quotes clear favorites. But they might already be the favorites. So is it really worth fifty million for them to just kind of retain that status? Um, but yeah, a bit odd from them. Uh, but I agree with you. I think Holland's too good. I think Pep's too good. The surrounding, you know, squad is too good um, to not, you know, the the floor for City is second, right? And then yeah. probably the ceiling is is going to be first for them this year. Uh, it sounds like both of us have Liverpool in this next group, but who all do you think will finish in the top four? Uh, yeah, I think Liverpool second City is a really, really obvious prediction to make, so I, I can't really be too sexy with that one. Um, I do think Spurs have got a really good chance of being third this year. Um, Antonio Conte is one of the smartest coaches around. Obviously, he had his little tantrum at times last season. Like after, <laughs> Thanks to you. <laughs> Spurs lost at Burnley. Yeah, just thought I'd drop that one in there. I remember that one <laughs> because it was one of the only games that we won last year. So I definitely remember that one. Oh, um, no. But yeah, Rick Conte extremely highly. He's obviously been there, done it everywhere where he's been. Um, I'm not sure Spurs are ready to to compete for the title just yet. Um, although Conte will be demanding that because he is extremely demanding of his players. I think Spurs made really big strides last season. The fact Kane seems happy and settled there now, rather than trying to manoeuvre himself away. Um, it was interesting that the the Bayern Munich sort of flirtation doesn't seem to have had any impact on him whatsoever. Um, yeah. Whereas it seemed like quite a clear tactic to from their point to see if there was any interest, to see if they could sort of leverage that, even though a lot of people would assume that Sadio Mane was their replacement for Robert Lewandowski. They seem to still have that sort of flutter at Kane. Um, obviously, Kane and Son, two of the best around. I think defensively, you can maybe still ask a question. I know Spurs fans rate Romero really highly. And it seems like Conte's got the players that he wants, doesn't it? So Spurs really backed him in the transfer market. I think they had to because if Conte doesn't get the players that he wants, Conte doesn't stay around. Um, so I think Spurs have done really good business. People like Perisic, very experienced, obviously what Conte wants. So I think Spurs are a good bet for third. Fourth is probably going to be a bit tighter. I often think it comes down to who's got the, the best manager in those situations. Chelsea are probably going to be in transition with all the changes there with the ownership. And they've lost some key defenders, Rudy and Christensen go in. Um, but Cooley Bally is an excellent signing from Napoli. I think Raheem Sterling is going to be a huge success there. So... Um, I think I've essentially gone with what the bookmakers are saying for the top four, but I can certainly see Spurs third, Chelsea fourth, which means Arsenal missing out again. Yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> was going to do a bold take section um, uh, on last week's episode that we just didn't end up having time for. And mine was going to be that Chelsea are going to miss the top four. And then the night before we recorded the show was when they lost again in America and then Tuchel went on his rant. Uh, and I was like, oh, maybe this isn't such a hot take anymore. 
this is kind of kind of the way people are leaning. And I do think there are a lot of questions at Chelsea. We don't need to dive into it too much again because, again, it was kind of the lead for last week's show. But I, I think yeah. they could really struggle. New ownership, getting rid of Lukaku. Werner seems to want out the door. I don't know if you can really get through a whole season with Havertz up front unless you are just trying to mimic what, what City have done the past few seasons, which could work. Um, <clears throat> infinite wingers, obviously. Ziyech sounded like he wanted to go. As far as I know, he's still there. You still have... Uh, Christian Pulisic in there. Obviously, you sign Raheem Sterling. Um, you lose three senior center backs. Although, I guess not. I think Azpilicueta actually just played their most recent match after it seemed like he was certainly off to uh, to Barcelona earlier in the window. Um, but you do lose, obviously, Rudiger. You lose Christensen. <laughs> People's opinions might vary on how much of a blow that second one is. Um, but yeah, it just, just feels like an odd year going in for Chelsea. And I agree with you. I do tend to go manager, but loathe though I am to admit it, the the... the um, young core that Arsenal have is really good and might be able to overcome the like. Uh, <laughs> I don't want I don't want to batter Arteta too too much, but amongst the other managers that are in that top tier in the Premier League, he's he's definitely a, a little short there. But the amount of young exciting talent that they have that can all grow together, I, I think, could counteract that a bit. Yeah. And they've um, signed really well. Arsenal have signed really well. I think Jesus and Zinchenko, obviously, they, yeah. they weren't regulars at City but certainly good enough to be really key players for Arsenal. I'm particularly interested to see how Zinchenko does that because it sounds like they're going to use him in midfield, which is where he plays for Ukraine. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons he wanted to leave City was so that he could play in his best position. So I think Zinchenko's got a great chance of being a, a really good, important signing for them, an area of the pitch where they've struggled for the last few years. And and I've always really liked Gabriel Jesus. I think he's one of the best strikers around. It's just he hasn't got the regular game time. Mm. Yeah, and I think the the like ultra benefit of Zinchenko is that they already have a really talented left back in Kieran Tierney, but he yep. just constantly seems injured. So like Zinchenko doing a like decade and a half younger version of James Milner of I'm gonna play in central midfield, but when needed I can also fill left yeah, back. Yeah, I think exactly, yeah. I think really helps them a lot. Um there's obviously a uh, situation developing that may or may not relate to that club that apparently we like super can't talk about. Checked with a couple people, was surprised that uh, it's as tight as it is about whether or not you're allowed to discuss the thing, but um, that could obviously massively derail things because um, it seemed like that was the goal in, in terms of the midfield pairing. But uh, in theory, on the pitch stuff, I think Arsenal have a real chance to pip like you said, a Chelsea team that are in transition. I don't really believe in this United squad. It's very similar to last year. And coming into last year, people thought the United squad was too talented to miss out on the top four. Obviously, they did. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going City, Liverpool, Tottenham, and Arsenal for my top four. Uh, unmentionable things pending. Um, it kind of sounds like we're, we're stuck with the same kind of group of three. Because like you said, I think these are all going to be pretty close for that fourth spot. But who do you think are going to finish in those European places? And you can't include UECL. And also, if you think the FA Cup uh, winner is already going to be from one of those clubs we've already mentioned. I think like trying to pick a winner of a cup is, is impossible, isn't it? Because it, it, so much of it is down to who performs on the day, which team take it seriously, like who's injured on the day. So I'm going to be foolish to try and pick a, a team for that. But... Why the hell not? Spurs are going to win the FA Cup. Love it. <laughs> um, yes, please. Um, um, I, I do think Conte will go hard for Cups because he'll, he'll see that as his chance to really make the statement that, that Spurs can be contenders and make that sort of bridging step towards being Premier League contenders maybe in a year or two. 
Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if Spurs went hard for certainly one of the domestic cups. Um, I think you're right about Manchester United. I think it's it's strange that they've got this new manager that seems to have made a couple of smart signings. Christian Eriksen seems like an incredibly smart signing, considering how dumb United have been in the transfer market in <laughs> year, recent years. To so go and get Christian Eriksen on a free, someone who immediately improves that team um, and is just a real humble guy who's going to work really hard, having gone through everything that he's gone through, obviously. Um, he's just going to be desperate to make that work. So I think it's a very smart signing, but it's just too many question marks over the rest of the team. Um, defensively, it still looks like they're going to have problems putting together a, a back four on goalkeeper that really works together as a unit. Defensive midfield still seems like a massive issue. They've done exactly the same as they did in the first summer under David Moyes, where they've gone after a player at Barcelona who has absolutely no interest in moving. Um, and it's just incredibly naive to see one of the biggest football clubs in the world just embarrass themselves like this. I mean, obviously they've got they've been tipped they've been tipped the wink from Barcelona that De Jong is available, but De Jong doesn't want to go. So uh, there's only so much you can do to try and make that happen when the player's not interested. It, it just feels like the same as as the Fabregas saga years and years ago for me. So. Um, obviously that could all change. They could make me look very silly and still get the young. Um, but it just seems like they've wasted the summer going after the top target that's not interested. And obviously they've got the Ronaldo saga as well that just seems like it's going to be a huge distraction. Massive problem for Eric Ten Hag there. So I think top four is a stretch for them, but I think they will probably limp into Europa League again, which they probably prefer actually to just not qualify for Europe at all and then be able to have a proper go at it next year. I think teams like United just don't want to be in this sort of middle ground. Um, and I think maybe Newcastle can push. They don't seem to have done the sort of splashy transfer business that people were maybe expecting or left handle were hoping for, mm. with obviously the, the Saudi takeover, which in itself is extremely problematic. But the fact is it's been allowed to happen. Um, they seem to be being sensible rather than silly in the transfer market. They haven't done anything like Man City signing Rubinho where they got all their money and they were just like, we need a shiny, expensive Brazilian who's not going to work. Um, they just seem to have bought players for sensible money to improve their team, which is annoying because it's not what anyone wants to see from that Newcastle project, let's be <laughs> honest. Um, obviously, we know Nick Pope very well at Burnley. He's going to be an upgrading goal. Um, and Eddie Howe as well. From, from Burnley as well. So it's essentially Burnley old boys there. Um, but I think they are building something which is going to be difficult for the rest of the Premier League to fight against in time. And I think they've got a good chance of, of sneaking up to sort of maybe seventh and push for that Europa Conference League spot as well. So I would go for the traditional big six because I think the gap to the rest is, is still too big. And maybe Newcastle the ones to do a West Ham and sort of push on for that seventh place this, this time. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, very easy segue because you just name checked the club that I think could do a West Ham, which is, checks notes, West Ham. Um, oh. <laughs> obviously, uh, David Moyes has done a really good job since re-going back uh, to West Ham. And I, I'm obviously, there are a lot of strikers coming to the Premier League, a lot of exciting players up front in the league already. But them getting Skamaka seems to really be flowing under the radar, um, considering his kind of being tagged as just another Abramovich regen. Um, I don't think he's that good, nor will he ever be that good. Um, But I can see stylistically why why some people are making the comparison. And he just seems to fit West Ham so well, where they already have really good crossers of the ball. They already have talent through the middle. Um, They can't really rely on Mikel Antonio for long stretches as their as their only you know center forward, um, <clears throat> so I think that signing was absolutely terrific. You add that to what they already had last season um, for the money that was being asked. I think they probably made the right choice and not just trying to go back to the Lingard. Well, especially after the season you just got out of Jared Bowen, um, no need to really mess with mess with that success. So I, I think they're they're just going to be around that area for a while. And if Chelsea's transition or if United's drama. Or if Arsenal are dealing with legal stuff, uh, like I wouldn't be shocked if West Ham jumped into the into like to break up that big six, um, which they threatened to do last year and obviously the year before as well. So uh, I, I think they're in for a really exciting season. And if we're cheating and when we're saying, you know, let's say Spurs win um, one of the the cup competition. Wait, it isn't one of. I think it has to be the FA Cup. Um, then, then I also have Palace as like kind of my sneaky dark horse side. I agree that that Newcastle is also a decent one. Um, but Palace just, they seem to have hit like every note perfectly ever since letting go like the vast majority of their starting 11, uh, not this summer, but the previous. Um, and depending on whether or not some of their younger talents like Edward or Lise or, uh, I forget the player's name that they, they just signed. Uh, well, they do have as as well. Yep. Zaha seems to be really, uh, locked into that project now. Uh, obviously, having been a, a childhood fan of who is now his manager, uh, which is always fun. Um, the defense is strong. They, they kind of, you know, they're young. Obviously, Joachim Anderson and Mark Gahey and the Spurs are apparently sniffing around the ladder, but I'd be shocked if they let him go. Um, obviously, have a really interesting goalkeeper battle uh, probably going to shape up. It sounds like Aito wants to leave after this season. So is he going to hold the spot or uh, is he going to immediately <laughs> lose it? Uh, to an incoming player but uh, all in all I, I think if if everything goes right I think Palace could easily finish in the top eight so I, I just figured I'd mention them a little bit here yeah uh, I think just hmm. on, just on Palace before we move on I think they're obviously going to really miss Conor Gallagher I think that's something that's it's going to be really hard for them to to get around and the flip side with West Ham is that they've kept all their good players Jared Bowen was linked with with some clubs that are in the window Declan Rice, it's been incredibly quiet considering in yeah. his position, he's the best in the league. There's no better defensive midfield in the Premier League now than Declan Rice for me. Um, and he's still at West Ham. So 
it is tricky for teams when you're in Europe and then trying to qualify for Europe again. It, it does get hard, but West Ham caught with it last season, so I think they've got every chance of doing it again. And I have to say, I'm a huge fan of Declan Rice. I think he's an absolutely incredible player. What we haven't really touched on, though, is obviously the World Cup being in the middle of the season. We've got True. absolutely no idea what impact this is going to have. It could be that teams are flying and then they have two months off and then they're terrible. It's going to be players come back from the World Cup who have heartbreak and they might have that hangover like Salah in the second half of last season where he had the missing out in the World Cup and losing in the African Nations final and he's, he's formed a self cliff for the second half of the season. So there's all these sort of intangibles that we just don't know. It's going to be one of the more interesting Premier League seasons as a result. Yep, totally agree. Uh, all right, now let's talk about the clubs that uh, things might not go so well for at the bottom of the table. Uh, who do you think you'll be trading spots with at the bottom of the table? <laughs> well, the great thing about being relegated, Kev, is we can't be the favourites to be relegated this season. We've already done it. So, yeah, I think the promoted teams are obviously going to find it tough. I think it is getting harder and harder. And we've seen teams like Norwich, it seems to come up and go down. And Watford are in danger of doing the same. We came back and went straight back up the last time. So I think it is it's difficult to go up and stay up. Um, Bournemouth don't seem to have done anything in the transfer market, which is one way of doing it. And Forrest seems to have done a Fulham of a few years ago, spending a huge amount of money on players who haven't really played in the Premier League, which is always very, very risky. Um, and Fulham haven't done a Fulham and haven't really bought anyone yet, really. So I think it's really difficult to see beyond those three. I think they're understandably the favourites in terms of betting. Um, you obviously look at the teams that struggled last season. I think it's going to be really difficult for Brentford. Um, the impact that Ericsson had there the second half of last season obviously got a lot of press because it was Christian Ericsson coming back from the dead and all that. But Ericsson had such an impact on that team. Now he's yeah. gone. Um, it's not just that he was their best player by a distance. It's the impacts of having someone come in who's so much better and elevated them. Everyone got to play with Christian Ericsson and that sort of galvanised them over the second half of the season. And I just remember the games I saw at Turf Moor last season. Brentford were on the day comfortably the worst team. Um, we beat them 3-0, I think. And considering how bad we were last season, if you're losing to Burnley 3-0, you've got problems. Um, they've obviously signed Ben Mee from us on a free transfer, which might help stiffen up the defence a bit. And I really like Thomas Frank. I think he's super smart, really plugged-in guy who's going to have a huge career as a manager, just maybe not at Brentford um, long-term. So I, I can see them struggling. And I think Southampton are going to be down there as well. They seem to have really changed their transfer strategy this season. They've spent quite a lot of money for Southampton. I think they're on sort of 50 million, 60 million, but not really on players that are household names. They seem to have gone for really young, inexperienced players, which might work brilliantly. They might turn out to be fantastic, or they might just be not good enough yet. Um, but I think the fact that they have changed things puts more pressure on the manager. Finished 15th two years in a row. It's gone a bit stagnant there. Um, I don't know. I think I don't see a lot of goals in that Southampton team either. Um, and as we've seen in the last few seasons, they have a tendency to get 
beaten really, really heavily. They seem to have one of these terrible defeats in them every season. Um, and I just think all that could be catching up on a, a squad that's not, not going to have a lot of know-how around it this season. Yeah, I kind of said that in my uh, season review for Southampton that we do with Dave each year. Um, <laughs> that I was really excited when Hasenhutl came to Southampton. I thought it would go really well, but I don't think he's managed a, first, uh, a, a single-digit finish since coming. And they, this seems to be what the strategy is, is just give him young, talented players, have him try to develop them, but not many of them were like at their prime or even near it. Um, I could very much see that going wrong. I, I can totally see what you're saying. I also don't think Jesse Marsh at Leeds is going to particularly work out. Uh, we spoke with John McKenzie a little bit. <laughs> uh, I don't think either of us would be shocked if he left mid-season and then suddenly was available to take the U.S. men's national team job after the World Cup. Really? Um, and if you think that's going to happen, then that probably means they're going to be in significant trouble. If Bamford is fit all year, maybe he can pull it two years ago and just kind of fire yep. them to safety. But <laughs> losing Rafinha is two guys off. It's going to be huge. Yeah, so difficult. Totally, and it, it seems like Harrison might be attack uh, a target for Newcastle as well. If you if you lose all three of those, and then you're relying on Bamford's fitness up front. That could get pretty dicey pretty fast. Obviously, stylistically, aren't really going to defend much more uh, focusedly than they did under Bielsa. So if you're if you're conceding opportunities on Meslier, if you're you know conceding uh, possession, if you're conceding like it's it could just get really rough really fast for them. Um, so I I have opted to believe Russ, who came on and told us that Fulham's staying up this year. I'm just going to believe him. If Fulham's staying up, I think it's at Leeds' expense. I think the only um, yeah. other team to I've talked over you and that's sorry. The only other team to throw in there because I, I thought you might talk about them is is Everton. Obviously had a really really wild season um, and sort of stayed up by a combination of inspiration from Pickford and Richarlison, who's obviously gone. Um, Goodison Park got really really crazy at the end of the season, sort of carried them to some freakish wins like over Chelsea. I think they beat Manchester United as well. Mm. Um, I don't rate Lampard as a coach solo. It always seems before have been defensively weak, really bad on set pieces. They've signed Tarkovsky and McNeil from us. Um, but there's a saying, isn't there? If you're signing players who get relegated, are you expecting to do better than, than that? I think mm -hmm. they're both good signings who will improve them. But I think the manager's a problem there. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if, if Everton were down the bottom and then looking for a new manager again by Christmas. Sure. And I did see somebody say, you know, if you're going to sign Burnley players, are you not just lining up Sean Dyche for November? Oh, yeah. I've been saying for years that Dyche <laughs> would be perfect for Everton and they keep not appointing him. But now he's available. You never know. <laughs> you never know. But you're not wrong. I mean, losing Richarlison, who I think scored something like six goals in their last eight games or something like that um, to, to help keep them up. And you mentioned Pickford, who had that like incredible double save among among many others. Um, yeah, and similar thing. Are you counting on Calvert-Lewin to be fit all season? Because that doesn't seem like a super sure bet. Yep. Um, the defense hasn't been incredible, although I do think that that is going to be a significant upgrade um, on the other options that they had there. But yeah, I, I think Everton are probably like a healthy 12 to 15. But as we were saying, like if something goes wrong, if Lampard just, uh, well, I guess he doesn't have to do anything different. If he doesn't improve, they could easily be in that conversation as well. Uh, all right, now for player stuff. Uh, who do you think will win the Golden Boot, and who do you think would be player and young player? 
Yeah, so I think well, we obviously talked about the two strikers at City and Liverpool earlier in the season, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were they were up there. Um, obviously, Salah's record last few seasons is almost unparalleled, but I actually think Kane this year. Yeah, um, I agree. It doesn't seem to be that many people talking about Kane, but apart from last season when he had a bit of a sulk or whatever was going on at the start of the season and he's he's got this tendency to start slowly. He had the thing for years where he just didn't score in August and everyone was like, why can this guy who scores all the time just not score in August? What's going on? Um, but yeah, I think it's all set up for Kane. Now he's obviously got um, in Sun one of the best wide forwards in the league. Kulosevsky's been really good on the other side as well. Spurs seem to be developing something really special under Conte. Like I said, I don't think they're going to be contenders this year, but I think they've got potential to be third and certainly looking for cups. Um, and I think Kane will just be back to his back, back to his best and scoring bucketfuls. I think he's a lock to get probably 20 league goals and push towards 25. So, so it depends how many, um, how many it needs. But like I mentioned earlier, the World Cup's in the middle of the season. You don't know what's going to happen at the World Cup. It might be that guys like Salah who get that time off, it's better for them to have the break. Um, Kane might go and score eight goals at the World Cup. England win the tournament, comes back on a high, he's just on fire. Like It's difficult to know. But I think Kane from maybe Salah, from Haaland, are probably going to be up there with the top three in that sort of order. Yeah, I agree. I do think it's Kane. And you're totally right that people are weirdly sleeping on him considering Conte's past success with, with strikers. Um, I, I think Sun's crazy goal scoring from last season will come down a little bit although you know having Kane being also one of the best passing forwards in the world game uh always always uh could be a threat to Kane's own gold <laughs> golden boot hopes uh if he keeps setting up Sonny like that but the addition of Kulisevsky who who is another creator in the team and I think that's why it was always Kulisevsky over over Bergvine is uh if it's Bergvine, it's Kane setting up opportunities for Son and Bergvine. If it's Kulisevsky, it's him setting up chances for Kane and Son, um, which I think is obviously a huge benefit. But also, uh, I don't know if you saw the social media stuff going on around uh, Sonny's golden boot. And like in all of the pictures, you had Kane looking like Gollum staring at, at Son holding the golden <laughs> boot. Uh, but yeah, I think he's going to come out firing. And he's also had an incredible preseason. I know we shouldn't like way too much into that, but like you said... Kane often gets off to a slow start, but he has just been banging them in from just about every angle, every distance in preseason thus far. So, yeah, I, I think he gets out to an early start and probably just coasts on it unless, like you say, there's either an injury or an excitement or a disappointment or something like that that, that interrupts stuff at the World Cup. Uh, obviously, if you score the most goals, you're in contention for, for player of the year. Uh, do you think that will be the same player or do you think there will be a little bit of a difference there? Yeah, I mean... It doesn't always happen, does it? It's normally a player from the champions who takes it. So if I want to back City to win the league, it's probably difficult to look beyond De Bruyne. I think it's been De Bruyne and Salah have been going for for those individual honours for the last few years. They are probably the two outstanding talents. Um, City will be hoping Haaland is in that sort of company as well. Like we said earlier, it just depends on how that sort of adaptation period goes. Um but yeah, I think if I'm going to tip City to win the league, it will probably be daft to, to not say De Bruyne. I think it just depends how he gets used to having a more traditional number nine um, instead of the false nine. But De Bruyne and Haaland are just too good for it not to work. Um, in terms of a young player, 
it's harder to pick in a way because the, the I still think the age is, is too big. What is it like? It's 26, 20, I think. I thought it was like 24 or something, which I mm. still think is way too high. It should be more like 20, 21. Um, but I'm just looking at who's eligible now and Haaland is eligible. So I think if Haaland has any sort of season that you would expect him to sort of 20-ish Premier League goals, he's just going to make so many headlines it's going to be very difficult to ignore him. Um, but one guy that you mentioned in passing earlier from from Palace, who I really like, Michael Elise. I think he's mm. he's got the potential to really step up and help them to to address the loss of of Conor Gallagher. He was obviously fantastic on loan there last season. I think Palace have got a real shot at being sort of top top ten, maybe push for that European spot. Like you were saying, I think Michael Elise is a sensational talent. If he can stay fit, he's going to have a huge season. Yeah, I think those are really good shouts. Also, worth noting, 24 did used to be right, but it is now you have to be 21 or younger on the preceding July 1st. So, okay, well, I like that. 21 to 22. Yeah, there was too many times when it was the same. Like, if you're good enough to be up for the main award, then you shouldn't be on the young player one as well. Like, I don't know if that's a me (laughs) being weird thing, but like, when Phil Foden was like being nominated for both and stuff. It's like, well, mm. he's played X Premier League games already. There's too many. He's still young, but he's not inexperienced. It should be more of like a... I think the Athletic did a really good piece, actually, towards the end of the season and said it should be rookie of the year. A guy yeah. in the first season and they were putting forward guys like Mark Gwehi at Palace who'd played in the Championship but first time in the Premier League made an immediate impact. And I agree with that. So maybe call it breakthrough of the year. However, it maybe sounds a bit more Americanized, but yeah, I think having players like Ford and who were established as some of the best in the league already, up for young player, it's it's daft to me. And I've just said Holland's going to win it, having come in with the reputation of being one of the best drags in the world. <laughs> but I still think it could possibly be tweaked. Yeah, but he hasn't done it in the Premier League yet, so <laughs> still counts. Exactly. Totally agree with your Ford thing, though. Farmers League, as we know, having seen Mike Vegos part <laughs> himself around the place. Like, I, I can't get into Germany the Vegos. I can't get into the vague horse stuff with you again. It should have worked. I don't understand. <laughs> Either I'm wrong or it didn't make any sense. So I'm leaning to the latter. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that, uh, that's not go long. That's not, I'll just get too angry. Smart, smart. Uh, well, let's let's stick with Burnley. Uh, obviously, this looks very different than than what we saw last year. Not not just because in the championship, but obviously huge changes in the squad, huge changes to the manager, and there are few better feelings in football than getting that first win of the season the first week. Because all of the like preseason anticipation feels like it's paid off. But I couldn't help but notice that a lot of the conversation after that match was not about the fact that you won. It was about like the massive stylistic difference between Dice and what Vincent Company brought in his first uh, official match as manager. I was just curious your thoughts on on both the way you played and the result. Yeah, well, obviously we got the entire domestic season underway on Friday night, first game of the season, because we are massive. So, quite <laughs> rightly, we were the curtain raisers for all of football. If we ignore the, the women's Euros that we spent 15 minutes talking about. This last year. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was bizarre, really, because obviously we've had nearly 10 years of Sean Dyche. We had a little period where it wasn't Sean Dyche at the end of last season, but it was still very much like Sean Dyche's squad. Um, it was always going to be a huge change. No one really knew what to expect. There'd been a lot of talk about company wants to play in this way and 
people who watched the friendlies had seen us try and adapt to that and it had been like teething problems and we'd had some good results and some bad results. We got taken apart by Newcastle in some training ground games last weekend and people were like, this might be a disaster. People were talking about odds on us being relegated, looking too good and putting bets on us to go down again. And it's just relief really that it already works to have, I think it was six debutants in the team, including a 19-year-old from our own academy. So not just someone that we signed this summer in the starting lineup, and just for it to immediately start knitting together. Incredibly pleasing. Um, you would expect some teething problems with such a different style of play, but even the few players who were left over seem to just take to it like a duck to water. I really thought we'd see trying to play out from the back, just giving it away and teams just running through us because people were in the wrong places, but it wasn't really anything like that at all. I think it's fair to say that Huddersfield were terrible, um, but people who've been watching the Championship more than I have in the last few years, like Jake, the Newcastle fan who's on the show quite regularly, he was telling me that the Championship is terrible standard and teams like Burnley and Watford and Norwich are just going to stomp all over it. And if Huddersfield were third last season, I know they've lost a couple of players and the manager, but if they were third doesn't say much for the standard of that league. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to say we're going to win the league by 40 points, but we're probably going to win the league by 40 points, I reckon. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And, of course, it's going to be a new-look front line for you as well. Obviously, the Chris Wood stuff in the middle of the year, and then about Vancouver. All of that to the side, though, signing Brazilians and stuff. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's almost difficult to keep up. Vitinho, the, the Brazil, first-ever Brazilian, the starters, I think that was nine. Um, but I don't think we've done. Uh, McNeil going obviously needs to be replaced. There's talk about Maxwell Corne still going to go. He's got this release clause that no one seems to want to pay, even though he's really good. It's I don't understand. Just pay the release clause. What are teams doing? Um, I think everyone assumes Corne is still going to go. If he doesn't, he's just going to rip up the league, but he probably will go. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up with sort of 12 new signings, which is, is crazy. Complete transformation of the playing staff. Players who've come in are almost all sort of 24 or, or younger. Um, a mix of guys on loan from big clubs like Taylor Harwood, Bellis from City, um, Ian Matson from Chelsea, the left back he scored. Um, and it all just seems to be working really well. Uh, and the guy who played out of his skin, though, was Josh Cullen, another debutant, came from Andalect, was with the company last season. Um, People who've watched Premier League Championship football might already have seen him around. He was at West Ham at the start of his career, played a bit, didn't really break through, um, and went out to, to Belgium. He just looks an incredible talent. I wouldn't be surprised if he was already moved on um, at the end of this season. I don't see he's been, I don't see him being with us for, for that long, but he looks an absolutely fantastic player. But up front's the area where there's still probably room for for improvement. I think we've been linked with a couple of attacking players. We had Ashley Barnes up front on Friday, which he was all right, but we had all these young, athletic, super energetic players making all these runs and then Ashley Barnes up front being like doing Ashley Barnes. Things, you know? <laughs> so it wasn't um, as much as the transformation and, and the fit seemed really good. I think it was obvious that we need a different kind and a striker in that team. That's that's always going to be the key sign. The last two times we've been in the championship, we've had strikers that scored 20 goals. It's not easy to just go and sign a striker who's going to get you 20 goals, otherwise everyone would do it. But I think if we went to do that, it's probably going to be hard to stop us this season. 
Gotcha. And then uh, obviously very sad. We don't need to get into what's going on with ownership and why it's happening or why it happened so late in the game. But just a, a moment to, to reminisce on, on Dwight McNeil's time at the club. Yeah, I mean, I, it is a shame because it's going to be harder and harder when I'm at appearances on the podcast to shoe on him in when he's, he's not at my club and my club's not even in the Premier League anymore. But yeah, it is a shame because I felt like he was the one that we could keep. Like, Pope, I think everyone understood was going to go. An England goalkeeper in a World Cup, yeah, he needs to be in the Premier League. Everyone got it. Um, Nathan Collins, I think people got that needed to be in the Premier League. He was too good when he broke through. It was like it was understandable. Tarkovsky, we knew was going to go. Ben Me, I think we had a, a feeling was going to go. So a lot of the key players that went, we were already resigned to that. I wasn't resigned to Dwight Manil. I thought we were going to keep him. Obviously, a local lad who's come through our own academy. Um, it's difficult to put a price on that. I think when you're trying to sell this vision to young players, to have your own attacking star who's come through the same system, I think it's almost priceless. Um, and I think all the guys that have been sold, we haven't really got the best money for them. But like you say, it's, it's the ownership stuff and the takeover stuff. And we don't really have time to go into too much detail. But yeah, hopefully he does well at Everton. Obviously, I've said, I think it's going to be difficult for for them this season. I, I can see Lampard leaving before Christmas. So it could be another weird season for, for Everton. I don't think it's a great move for him to be honest, but I think he's a super talented guy. He probably does need a change of scenery. Um, but it, it is a bit upsetting to lose someone for up to 20 million, who I still think is potentially 40, 50 million pound player if he continues to develop. So hopefully that happens and we get to see him at his best in the Premier League. It's just a shame it's going to be for, for Everton, who I now hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw all the stuff between uh, some of the Everton pods and, and Natalie Bromley, who obviously... Uh, did the known and never stuff with you and I've, I've done a couple appearances on before <laughs> and uh yeah there seems to be some growing animosity between those two uh those two fan bases and i'm sure it'll be worse when sean dice inevitably takes over in late october <laughs> i was gonna talk to you about burnley luton but since this is a Premier League podcast i suppose we could go the other way and talk a little bit about uh spurs and southampton just curious your your thoughts on that one heading into the season yeah, well, like you've heard over the last little hour or so, I'm I'm really high on Spurs this season. Though. I think Conte is a fantastic coach. Smart signings seem to have worked out really well. I think Southampton signings are a bit more out there, like lads from big clubs who haven't played yet and paying sort of fifteen million for them. Like it's, I think it's risky. Um, Southampton finished last season quite badly as well, and I think there's often a real hangover there. Um, I think Spurs as well, the new stadium is going to be really important for them. You, we've obviously had these like two weird seasons where it's been behind closed doors and stuff. And I feel like that stadium's only just now starting to be like home. It always takes time, doesn't it? It was the mm. same for Arsenal when they moved. It, it took took a while until they really settled. I think West Ham, obviously London Stadium, the Olympic stuff, the athletics track, it, it was a really hard adaptation for them. I think it's been easier for Spurs, but I still don't think it really feels like their home. But I think Conte will go hard on making it really atmospheric. He's really one for winding the crowd up, isn't he? So I think there'll be a lot of that. It'll be always set like, you can't see because it's a podcast, not a video, but I'm doing the Italian arm waves, which <laughs> Conte will be doing. And there'll be a lot of that gene up the fans. So yeah, I think Spurs will probably get off to a winning start. I think 
maybe even like a statement win to to really put down that message to the rest of the league that they're going to be pushing for for top four certainly and compete for cups and stuff this season. Yeah, I'm a little nervous considering how much we just dunked on uh, Southampton. Yeah, Southampton's <laughs> terrible. They're rubbish. It's not going to work. Like, all their new players are going to score hat-tricks. It's like 20-0. <laughs> yep, and James Ward-Prowse, who we were interested in, but then ultimately chose to not sign. He's going to bang three free kicks and have two more assists from corners. Um, but yeah, I think I would have been more bullish had the match against Roma gone better. Obviously, it's preseason, but we haven't lost in preseason yet. So doing it in the last one just feels like a little disruptive, especially with an 11 that mostly looked like what it'll probably look like week one. I really hope Devinson Sanchez does not start as the left-sided center back as Ben Davis deals with injury. Um, can't believe I'm saying this, given how he's looked for the last two years, but I'd much prefer Clement Longley. Uh, to start in that left-sided center back role to start the season. But outside of that, it looks like how it's probably going to look. Doherty on the right, Perisic on the left, Romero, Dyer, whoever the left-sided center back is, Hoybier and Bentancourt, Hoybier and Basuma, and then the front three of Kulisevsky, Kane, Sanzo. Probably not too many changes, which is always good going into a new season. Um, obviously, a lot of additions to add depth, a lot of additions to help with the five subs thing. Obviously, Conte didn't really trust a lot of the air quotes depth that we had last season. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm thinking this is probably a win at home to start the year. If it's not, I don't think anybody will panic too much. Cause like you said, there, there's, uh, so much excitement and expectation coming into the season. I think that would override one result, especially if we played well and just didn't get the points. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's hope it starts well. And like I said, with my, uh, thinking that Kane is just raring to go to start the season, I'm, I'm going to go Kane brace to start in a, in probably a three, one win I'm going with. <laughs> Do you think you're done with transfers as well? You seem to do all the business quite early, which is good, but... It's a great question. I think we're a centre-back short. Fans always want to see more, don't they? And like, with a month still to go, like, I'm not his agent and I'm not trying to push him to go, but someone like Maxwell Corney, I think, would be a great signing mm. for Spurs. There's another sort of depth piece, someone who can play multiple positions. He'd yep. be an option at left wing-back, cover for Sun. He's like, totally. He'd be really useful. And for for the price, I think the release clause is something meant to be 17.5 million for a pullback Spurs. That was pocket money, really, isn't it? It's Jed Spence money is what it is. Um, yes, I, I, I oh, would exactly. definitely, I'd definitely be interested in signing someone like like Cornet. And like you said, he covers a lot of positions. I just don't know if that's what it's going to be. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we signed one more attacking player. I think the idea was sign an actual striker and have Richarlison as wing depth, but we could go the other way. Sign a player like Cornet and then have Richarlison be specifically striker depth. I mean, not specifically. He can still play. It's not like he suddenly is incapable of playing in yeah. other positions. But um, yeah, that could be the way. But I, I think the big one is center back. My guess is Spurs are going to take one last swing at Bastoni and Vardiol. And then the big question is, will they bring in somebody that isn't one of their primary targets just because it's still a need? Or was the point of Longley to be able to try to sneak by another year? Like you're saying, maybe this year isn't the year that we're pushing for the title and just say, you know what, next year when we get Bastonian, then we're really pushing for the title. Of course, that still expects that for some reason within one year, Bastoni decides that he hates playing in Italy for his hometown team. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, I, I think we'll sign one more. I think it'll either be a center back or an attacking player, but 
time will tell. And as I said on last week's show, we just have to either sign no more players or two more players. Because if we sign a seventh, everybody's going to do like photoshops of the Baldini seven. And it's going to be Richarlison's <laughs> face on Chadley's body. And it's just going to be dreadful. So Yeah, no one wants to see that. Yeah, no. That's not my that. No, thanks. Uh, but anyway, we'll wrap this show up there. Uh, so, Jamie, if you'd like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now's a good time. Yeah, it's good to be back on a, a Premier League show, even though I've not spoken Premier League club anymore. So, um, sorry if you were hoping to be rid of me this season. I guess you haven't. Um, I write and edit the Burnley newsletter, No Name Ever, which goes out by a Substack. If you're interested in following more about the Vincent Company revolution, it looks like it's a really interesting story this season. It's free. It goes out on a Monday by a Substack. You can get it by my Twitter as well, which is at Jamie Sport, which is inevitably full of hot fire takes throughout the season as well. <laughs> Love it. Uh, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevrov. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable or by searching EPL Roundtable in all of your podcast services. But yeah, Jamie, an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Best of luck to Burnley throughout the season. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.